I'll invite you to turn your Bibles. We're going to look one more time at Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. We've been uh, teaching a series that we've entitled, Jesus, Our High Priest. And we've kind of used as a, as a text scripture a beginning point, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse, uh, what is it, verse 17, I think it is, where it says, Wherefore it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, that he might make reconciliations to the sins for the sins of his people. The Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Those are the two characteristics that it identifies about Jesus and his present-day ministry. Now, the reason that I want to emphasize his present-day ministry is because a lot of times people think, well, Jesus' work was to come to the earth and go to the cross and die on the cross for our sins, and then he was raised from the dead. But what's he doing now? So many times people want to focus on Jesus when he was in the, here on the earth, Jesus in the Gospels. Well, that's great. It's, uh, Jesus revealed the Father to us. You, you need to know what Jesus did when he was here on the earth. The Gospels are terribly important. And then others want to focus on Jesus on the cross. Well, you have to focus on Jesus on the cross. Without Jesus on the cross, you don't know what the sacrifice that was made for us. And then still we want to focus on Jesus being raised from the dead. That's important too. But so many times people just stop right there. Jesus was raised from the dead, and, and, and I guess he's just up in heaven eating bonbons from there on out, you know? Just sitting, resting, waiting for God to say, okay, it's time to go get him. Now, the Bible says Jesus has a present-day ministry. And Jesus said that his present-day ministry was more important than his earthly ministry. He told the disciples, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I go not away, the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, will not come. He's saying it's better for us now than when he was here on the earth. Think about how many people in the body of Christ just wish they could have been here when Jesus was alive on the earth. Oh, if Jesus was, if I could just have gotten to Jesus when he was here on the earth, then my sickness would be healed. Then my problem would have been solved. I could have gone to him like the woman with the issue of blood. I could have gone to him like those that had problems and those that were, that were bound with afflictions and different things. All my problems would be solved. Jesus said it's better for you now. That's not what a lot of people want to hear. But that's what Jesus said. He said, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the comforter won't come. So he's saying that his present day ministry is as important or maybe more important now than even when we saw him here on the earth. Now, don't get me wrong. If he hadn't come to the earth, it couldn't be the sacrifice. I'm not discounting anything. But Jesus said that a better day was coming. That's your day and mine. So that's what the Bible says. It says that he's a faithful and a merciful high priest. That means he always comes through and his mercy endures forever. Okay, you must not have heard that. That means he always comes through. That's what it means. It means He always comes through and His mercy endures forever. That means you can't find any situation that God won't help you. That means you can't find any situation where God says, no, I'm sorry, you've had too many chances. That's it for you. Remember the old Seinfeld show? The Soup Nazi? I think a lot of people think that's the way God is sometimes with them. That's it. No more righteousness for you. No more mercy for you. No more forgiveness for you. That's it. You know what's an amazing thing? The modern day church emphasizes the mercy of God in one and only one area, and that is forgiveness of sins. Now, I've been saying that for weeks, but something occurred to me this last week that I've never really thought of, and that is they don't pr promote that the mercy of God belongs to the forgiveness of sins for everybody, just for the unsaved. The modern day church says, no matter what you've done, no matter what mistake you've made, come to Jesus and He'll save you. But what about the person that's been saved and messed up? Nah, not so much mercy there. God forgives any sin once. No, the mercy of God endures forever. Well, I want to wrap this series up. I think I'm going to wrap this series up this morning. I know that uh, the Lord really spoke to me about the last piece of the puzzle. And so I want, to, I want to talk to you about that for a few minutes this morning. And you know what that means when I say a few minutes, don't you? 
absolutely nothing. So I want to talk to you this morning about the last piece of the puzzle. But in order to do that, we're going to have to cover a little bit of the ground that we have covered, and, and we'll try to do that in an in a expeditious manner so that we don't uh, you know, spend too much time on things that we've already talked about. To get the most out of this, you really need to go back and hear the things that were said before in this series. And this series was based on the series before that, so you really need to get that one too. And uh, that's kind of how it works with me. I've been teaching a series for 27 years, and um, they all kind of work together. Psalm 145, verse 8, it says, The Lord is gracious. The word gracious means disposed to show favors. I can't say this, I can't quote this verse, I can't read this verse without saying this over and over again. And that is, some people are naturally disposed to be optimists. Some people are naturally disposed to be pessimists. Some people are naturally disposed to be outgoing. Other people are naturally disposed to be introverts. God is naturally disposed to show favors. God's disposition, His makeup, is to show favors favors. That's what that means. The Lord is gracious. He's disposed to show favors and full of compassion. Now, if you're full of something, you can't have any more in there. If you've got a glass that's full of water, that means there's no, more, no room for anything else. The Lord is full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. Now, we've made this statement before, but again, we need to repeat it. And that is mercy and compassion are the same two words in the, in the Hebrew. Merciful and compassionate are the same two words in the Greek. It mean, they mean exactly the same thing. They're interchangeable terms. And they both mean, the both words mean to love tenderly, to be pitiful, and full of eager yearning. So here where it says the Lord is full of compassion, it means He's full of eager yearning. What does that mean? That means He wants to do more for you than you want Him to do. That means... We put the limits on what he can do because he's full of eager yearning. It means he's full of tender love towards you. Not has some tender love, but the rest of it comes in the judgment category. He's full of tender love towards you. He's full of pity for you. Now, pity is not spoken of in the Bible as an emotion. Pity is spoken in the Bible as an attitude so that you can do good to someone. I have pity on the poor, therefore I give to them. That's the way pity is used in the Bible. It's not talking about emotions. It's talking about an attitude that motivates action. So the Lord is pitiful. He's full of pity for you. Slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to a few. That's what religion tells you. Religion tells you He'll be good to some. Folks, no matter how you slice and dice this, religion tells you that God plays favorites. Yet that's the one thing the Bible says God does not do. It says He is no respecter of persons. He is no respecter of persons. James even goes so far as to say, if you keep the whole law but you are a respecter of persons, you're guilty of the whole law. He identifies, specifies that being a respecter of persons would make you guilty of breaking the whole of the law of Moses. That means if God is a respecter of persons, when He says that He's not, He's guilty of breaking the law. That would make Him unrighteous. If He's unrighteous, He can't be a righteous judge. If He's broken the law, He can't judge you for breaking the law. Yeah, that goes over big. Everybody just loves it when you say that because you think... Oh, wait a minute. The religious part of, 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 of your makeup or your thinking or your training or whatever rises up and say, wait a minute. Did he say that God might be unrighteous? Oh, we've got to turn that off. No, I'm saying if God is a respecter of persons, then he would be unrighteous. So what does that mean? It means he can't be unrighteous, so he can't be a respecter of persons. The Lord is good to all. Equally. Well, why do some people seem to get a better shake in life than other people? Because... We put the limits on what He can do for us. Not Him. He's full of compassion. He has great mercy. Full of eager yearning to do the same and the, and the best and the most wonderful things for everybody. We're the ones that limit Him. The Lord is good to all. And His tender mercies are over all of His works. Now turn with me over to Mark chapter 1. As I said, we want to run through some of these things just real quickly. Mark chapter 1 shows us an example of Jesus' mercy in action. Mark 
Mark chapter 1, we'll start reading in verse 40, and it said, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him. You know what beseeching means, don't you? Beseeching means he's asking him for something. He's looking for a favor. Well, he came to the right place because the Lord is disposed to show favors. So he came to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I want you to notice there's two sides. Willingness and ability. He said, I believe you can. I'm just not sure if you will. The if in his mind, the if in his thinking is if God is willing, not if God is able. This guy is a perfect picture of the modern day church. Because everybody in the body of Christ, everybody that says Jesus is their Lord, everybody says, oh, with God all things are possible. They ignore the part that says with all things are possible to them that believe. But they say, with God, all things are possible. What are they saying? They're saying God can do anything. That's what this guy said. He said, I believe you can. I just don't know if you will. And Jesus, verse 41, moved with compassion. Now, again, the modern day church says Jesus healed to prove that he was the Son of God. You can't find that in Scripture, though. You can't find any place where the Bible says or Jesus identifies or the Holy Ghost gives us a record of where Jesus did something to prove that he was the Son of God. You can't find it. But you find over and over and over again where Jesus healed the sick because he was moved with compassion. In other words, you cannot find what the modern day church says to be the reason that Jesus healed, and that is to prove that his divinity. But you can find over and over and over again examples where the Bible tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion. His healing Action was motivated by compassion, not to prove who he was. Now, why is that important? Because the modern day church says Jesus doesn't have anything to prove nowadays. He's been to the cross. He's been raised from the dead. He didn't have anything to prove nowadays. See, if you can get, if you hook into this idea that Jesus healed to prove that he was the Son of God, then healing is not necessary for today. But if you turn it around to what the Bible says, and identify that Jesus was moved with compassion. He healed because he was moved with compassion. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. Folks, don't think the devil's not behind this Jesus being the Son of God and healing to prove he's the Son of God stuff. Because now, now the idea is, oh, he doesn't have anything to prove. He's seated at the right hand of God. Everybody knows that Jesus went to the cross and died and was raised from the dead. Has nothing to prove anymore. But back then, see, he had something to prove. No, he didn't. Seriously? The Roman soldiers came to get Jesus and said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I'm he, and they fell backwards. He's got something to prove? Really? They wanted to throw him off the brow of the cliff, and Jesus passed through the middle of them, and they couldn't touch him. And he's got something to prove? And Jesus moved with compassion. Verse 41 again. Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. Folks, I want you to understand something. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus is the same yesterday, that means in Mark 1, today, that means in 2012, and forever. If he willed in Mark 1, he wills today. And he wills forever. And anybody that tells you difference, lying. Basing, I'm not saying they're not sincere. They may sincerely believe it. But they're basing their thoughts, they're basing their opinions, they're basing their beliefs on something other than what the Bible says. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. Turn back with me to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 14. Let's look at another example. Again, I'm trying to be quick. It's hard to be quick in these things, though. But I'm trying. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. It said, And then Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. Notice, he was moved with compassion. Here's this tender love. Here's this great pity that he has for them. Here is this eagerness, this eager yearning of his. So what did he do? He saw a multitude, was moved with compassion toward them, and healed they're sick. What did his compassion motivate him to do? Heal. 
Jesus never changes. If he's a merciful and faithful high priest today, then that means the same mercy that motivated him to heal their sick would motivate him to heal the sick today. Or else he's changed. No two ways about it, folks. It's one way or the other. Thank God he hadn't changed. Thank God he hasn't changed. Now we've, uh, let's look at something else. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 9. Here's another example of Jesus' mercy to heal. Here's something that we see that, uh, that shows us a little different wrinkle, gives us a little bit more information about the mercy of God. Matthew chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Thou son of David is a Messiah reference. They're saying, we believe that you're the one that was promised. Jesus didn't go around with his resume saying, see, David, I'm, I'm a descendant of David. That's not the way that it worked. When they're calling him thou son of David, they recognize that he's doing what the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would do. And so therefore they accept him as the chosen one. The anointed one. So when they're calling out thou son of David, they're literally calling him the Christ. Jesus, Messiah. Sent from God. We believe it's you. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. What are they asking for? They're asking for mercy. And when he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him. This infuriates people. Because Jesus made people come to him. So many times the modern day church says, well, if it's just the will of God, it's just going to happen. No, it's not. Jesus came and died for the sins of the world by the will of God. Well, what determines whether people get saved or not? Their choice. He gave us the word to tell us what was done for us so that we could have faith to receive it. But it's the individual's choice. It's not God's choice. God has already chosen. He chose to save everybody. What does that mean? Everybody's going to go to heaven? Nope. Just the ones who receive what He gave them. How do you do that? Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and God raised Him from the dead. And confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. That's what the Bible says is faith. To believe in your heart and to say with your mouth. No, no, no. Pastor Mike, it's all about the sovereignty of God. Well, that's half right. The sovereignty of God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. But you as a free moral agent decide whether or not you're going to accept it. So they ask for mercy. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus lets them come to him. He still does. He'll let you come to him. And if you don't come, he's okay with that. He's already paid the price for whatever it is you need. But you decide. And he won't force you. I've noticed that those people that say, well, if it's the will of God to heal me, then I'll just be healed. They never get well. They never receive healing. Why? Because you have to take action. You have to choose to take possession of it by believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. So when Jesus was come to the house, the blind men came to him. I wonder how tough that was for them to get there. They can't see. Now, if that happened today... People would rail on Jesus, oh, those healing evangelists. Who do they think they are? Doesn't he know they can't see? And yet he passes them by and goes on to the house and makes them come to him? Yeah. It's the way it works, folks. If you want something from God, you have to come to him. So when they came to Jesus in the house, the blind men, or Jesus said unto them, asked them the question, he said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, Yea, Lord. Yes, Lord, in other words. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. What does that tell us? It tells us that the mercy of God is available to everybody, but it's faith that activates it. Faith is a necessary ingredient to activate or take hold of the mercy of God that's already available to us. Well, we know that's true where salvation is concerned. We just talked about that. Jesus has already gone to the cross. He's already died for your sins. He's already been raised from the dead. If someone decides they want to get saved today, if someone decides they've had enough of making their own way, that they want to make Jesus the Lord of their life, 
Jesus is not doing one more thing to make that happen. It's their choice. So what do they do? They simply believe in their heart and say with their mouth and receive what's already been done. That's how faith takes hold of the mercy of God. When they choose, not when God chooses, God already chose. The Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. God chose before man was ever made. There's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God was God's plan was, I'm going to provide a Messiah, a Savior for mankind, a sacrifice for mankind, that whosoever will, let him come. Your choice. He's already made his. He chose you. What do you choose? Folks, He chose you to be saved. He chose you to be healed. He chose you to be blessed. What do you choose? That's what He's asking this guy. He said, do you believe? Do you believe? I said, yeah. Then He says, according to your faith, be it unto you. In other words, the mercy that you ask for, the healing mercy that you ask for, clearly healing is part of the mercy of God because that's what they ask for. They ask for mercy and they meant healing. So the healing mercy of God, any aspect of the mercy of God, is available by faith. And I know a lot of people don't like that. Because that puts responsibility on the individual. And it's so much easier to say it's all God's fault. So much easier to say, I'm in this mess, I'm in because of God's plan. Somehow, some way, don't understand it, never will understand it, not supposed to understand it, but God's behind it. And if some people don't outrightly accuse God of it, they'll say, well, God allowed it. Well, what are you allowing? What do you allow? The Old Testament, God set before His people. He said, Behold, this day I set before you a blessing and a curse. Life and death. And in case nobody, somebody didn't know what was the, the best way to go there, He said, Choose life. But He did say, Choose. He didn't say, I set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing, and I'm going to spend the great wheel of fortune in heaven to see which one you fall on. So look over your shoulder, because you never know what might come. Oh, he said, choose life. You choose. Now, we see the mercy of God applied into other areas, too. The Bible said uh, in... Um, um, well, I'll just give you the references here without going into them. It says in uh, Mark chapter 8 that the multitudes followed Jesus for three days out in the wilderness, and so He multiplied the loaves and fishes by His mercy. He was moved with compassion on the multitude, and He uh, multiplied the loaves and the fishes. The flishes. You know what flishes are, don't you? <laughs> the loaves and the fishes. And He fed 4,000 people that day. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 5 that there was the madman, the man that was demon-possessed. He had the legion. Uh, possessed of the devil and had the legion, the way the Bible says it. And he came and he worshipped Jesus. And Jesus cast the evil spirit out of him. And then afterwards, Jesus said, go tell. He wanted to come with Jesus and stay with his company. And he said, no, you go back and tell those that know you how the Lord has had such great compassion on you. So the Bible said Jesus identifies. It was the compassion of God that set you free. So we see the compassion of God or the mercy of God to provide healing. We see the mercy of God to, provide provi to make provision, material provision. And we see the mercy of God to deliver you from the power of the devil. The mercy of God did all three of those things in Jesus' day, and Jesus never changes. He's a faithful and merciful high priest now, so the mercy of God would have to do the same thing today. Now, I want you to turn with me over to, uh, turn with me over to James chapter 5. I apologize if I didn't go through that enough or spend enough time on that, but uh, as I said, we've talked about these things for several weeks, and so I really would encourage you, if you weren't in some of those services, get a hold of the, uh, the messages and, and uh, where we went into detail about some of these things. One of the things that Jesus said about the Holy Ghost, as I mentioned earlier, He said that it's better for you that I go away. It is, it's, King James says expedient. It's expedient for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Comforter won't come. And we know he's talking about the Holy Ghost as being the comforter. We also know that the Holy Ghost comes to us in two ways. He comes to us in salvation, and then that's what we saw first in John chapter 20, when the apostles, the 12 disciples, literally were, or the 11, Judas by that time was already out of the picture. But the 11 disciples were saved. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. And their lives changed. Where before they were 
closed, uh, behind closed doors and, and hiding from the Jews. Now they're openly in the temple praising God and, and worshiping. They're not afraid of being taken and killed anymore. There's a joy. It says, uh, Luke 24, 52, I think it is. It says they return to Jerusalem with great joy. Well, that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what happens when somebody is saved. They give their lives to Jesus. They become a new creature and are changed from the inside. That's what happened to them. Now, the same group, he tells, to wait in Jerusalem until they be endued with the power of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. That's when the power of God started manifesting and made them witnesses that Jesus is alive. So they got saved and a work of the Holy Ghost took place. And then they got filled with the, the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit, whichever term you like best. And that's when the power of God began to manifest. So we see that there's a work of the Holy Ghost in both aspects. Now, Jesus said, that when the Holy Spirit was come, when the Comforter has come, He would glorify me. We see over and over again and looked at great length at how Jesus, when He healed in the four Gospels, people glorified God for their healing. Why would we imagine then that Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is going to glorify Him in our day if the mercy of God is withdrawn where the sick are concerned? Why would we imagine that the Holy Spirit would glorify God if His, if His healing mercy has either been withdrawn or modified in any way whatsoever? When in fact Jesus said, those that believe in Me will do the same works that I do and even greater works they'll do too. So you got people in the modern day church saying, well, that's not the way that, that God works nowadays. Well, Jesus said it would be. He said you'd do the same works. Oh, no, Pastor Mike, we do greater works now because we get people saved. And Jesus couldn't get people saved when He was here on the earth. Okay, well, that's fine. If you want to call those the greater works, I don't have a problem with that. But Jesus said you do the same works and greater works. So where did the healing mercy and the healing works go? How is anybody qualified? When Jesus said that they would continue, how is anybody qualified to say they've been done away with? I'm certainly not. Folks, all I've got to go on is the Bible. And you know, it's the funniest thing. When I preach what the Bible says and do what the Bible says, the same works happen. Go figure. But I notice those that say that they've been done away with, those that preach that healing is not available today, and that the sick have to settle for the mercy of God where the forgiveness of sins is concerned only, I notice that they don't get any of the works that Jesus did done. Now in James chapter 5, I want to pull some things out here, but I want to give you the context. Look at verse 7. James is speaking of some things regarding the last days. How many of you believe we're in the last days? Well, Paul said they were in the last days, and that was 2,000 years ago. So... Wherever we are, we are 2,000 years further into the last days than Paul said. I'm not saying Jesus is coming by September, but, you know, it could be soon. But maybe not. Maybe I'm just looking at things wrong. Maybe it's going to be another 50 years. Maybe it's going to be another 100 years. Either way, we're 2,000 years further into the last days or closer to the end than when Paul said they're in the last days. Okay? So we all good on that? All right, so this must apply to us then, because he's talking about the last days. Notice in verse 7, he said, Be patient, therefore, brethren. What is the subject? What is the point that James is trying to make? To be patient. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now he tells you what to be patient about. Here's what it specifically he's talking about, be patient toward. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Thank God he's coming. Jesus is coming back for the church. That's not some fairy tale, folks. Jesus is coming back for the church. James says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. What's he telling us? He's telling us God is patient. He says God is being patient. The reason Jesus hasn't come already is because God is being patient. Now, what's God waiting for? He's waiting for the, the early and the latter rain. That's a type of the Holy Ghost. He's waiting for a move of the Holy Spirit. The early rain we saw poured out in Acts chapter 2. Thousands of people got saved. 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost. A few days later, 
5,000 people got saved because Peter and John healed the, man, the crippled man at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 5. Or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 3. That was an outpouring of the early rain. So what is the latter rain going to look like? Same thing the early rain looked like. Multitudes of people being born again and healed. It says that Jesus, who is the husbandman, is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. He's holding off until everyone who chooses to come into the family of God will make their choice. Now, I don't believe that means that, that you know, he's got a certain quota. You know, there's a, in heaven there's this big ticker. You know, he's waiting for the magic number. I don't think that's what it means at all. I think it's just trying to get across the, the point that God wants as many people in his family as possible. Well, if God wants everybody in his family, why doesn't he just make it happen? Why, does, why in the world does the Bible tell us to go into all the world and preach the gospel? If God can just do it, why doesn't he just do it? Because he can't. The reason he can't is because it's man's choice, not his choice. So he says, we need to be patient because God's being patient. Verse 8 emphasizes that as well. It says, be ye also patient, just like God is. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He says in verse 10, use the prophets for an example. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. Now, folks, some people have the idea that if you have enough faith, you'll just get instant results. James didn't seem to know that. James didn't seem to have that revelation. Now, who is James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. Mary is his mother. Joseph is his father. He's got the same earthly parents that Jesus had. Now, he didn't believe on Jesus when he was here in his earthly ministry, but church tradition tells us that Jesus appeared to James after he was raised from the dead, and James got saved and became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. We see that in Acts chapter 15 when the, the uh, council at Jerusalem takes place. James is the one that answers and says, here's how we're going to handle this. Not Peter. Paul wasn't even there. None of the other apostles. It was James. James stood up and says, all right, well, here's what the Holy Ghost says. Seems good to me and the Holy Ghost that we do this. Where did he come from? He met Jesus, his risen brother. Wouldn't that have been an interesting event? So what is James saying? I mean, you had thought that James would have been close enough to Jesus. Mary and his brothers and sisters followed him around in his ministry. They knew what was going on. They were just kind of on the outside saying, I don't know about this. Well, one time Mary said, Jesus, you're going too far. And Jesus said, my family is the one that trusts in me and believes my words. So James certainly understood that things take time. Folks, if the idea were accurate, that if you had enough faith, you'd get instant results on everything, do you know what that would lead to? You'd believe in what you saw. You would judge your faith by the results that you see. And faith is the evidence of things that you can't see. It's necessary because the whole of the kingdom of God is like planting a seed and letting it grow. It's necessary that some things don't work instantly. That, that really excites people. Because you want instant results, don't you? Well, sure we do. Man, we stick something in the microwave for 30 seconds and tap our foot for 30 seconds. Come on. We want everything right now. Well, everything doesn't work right now with God. And some things are necessary to take time so that you develop the strength of character inside while they're working. Because whether you think so or not, very few of us are ever as far down the road as we would like to think we are. So that's the context that James is talking about. He says, use the, the prophets for an example. Look at how they suffered affliction. Look at how they waited for some of the things that they prophesied by the, the will of the Lord. Look at how some of those things didn't happen right overnight. Then he says in verse 11, please notice verse 11. There is a name of a man in James chapter 5, verse 11. His name is Job. Have any of you ever heard of Job? Has anybody not heard of Job? I really, I want to see a hand. Does anybody not know who Job is? Okay, everybody knows Job. Folks, I want you to understand something. This is the only time. Please underscore only time in the New Testament that Job is talked about. The only time 
that the Holy Ghost tells you about Job in the New Testament. Now, where do we live? Do we live in the Old Testament? Nope. That was under the law. We live in the New Testament. Why is the New Testament given to us? To reveal what we have through the sacrifice of Jesus. The only time that Job is mentioned in the New Testament is James chapter 5, verse 11. Now, you'll recognize this when James tells us about Job. Because this is what all of you have heard about Job. James 5.11 Behold, we count them happy which endure. That's the subject. When you hold out, it's a happy thing. When you let your faith bring the results, that is a happy thing. Not instant results. In every case, sometimes it is. Not always. So we behold, behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've heard of the patience of Job. Oh, we've heard all kinds of things about Job. We've heard all the things that God did to Job. We've heard all the trouble Job had. We have heard how the devil went into the presence of God. We have heard so much about Job. Mostly from people that have no idea what they're talking about. But everybody's quick to talk about Job. Everybody's quick to talk about Job. Let's see what the Holy Ghost said about Job. You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. That the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now what is James is telling us by the Holy Spirit? He's saying here's the story of Job. Here's the lesson to learn from Job. And that is the end of the Lord is that he's pitiful and of tender mercy. What is he saying? Job 42 verse 10 said, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord blessed him with twice as much as he had before. That's what the Holy Ghost mentions about Job in the New Testament. You've heard of the patience of Job. How long did Job last? Most Bible scholars agree that the, that the whole book of Job was anywhere from six months to a year. Most agree on about nine months. Folks, have you ever had to endure something for nine months? Dear Lord, nine months would seem like a picnic to me on some things. Sheesh. I remember when we were going through some of the trouble with our building project here. One year rolled by, two years rolled by, three years rolled by, four years rolled by, five years rolled by. And the devil's telling me regularly, even Job only had nine months of this stuff. What is wrong with you? You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, what do you hear about Job? Everybody hears about Job, the accusation against God. Well, God allowed these things to happen to Job. Is that what the Holy Ghost is saying the story of Job is about? Well, God touched, touched Job's flesh. He, he took all of his stuff. Well, okay, if the devil really did it, but God allowed it. And the God worked, and God worked together hand in hand with the devil to cause this to happen. Is that what the Holy Ghost is telling you about the story of Job? Now, I want to hear from all the Jobers. Because there are millions of them out there. What is the Holy Ghost telling you the story of Job is? By the way, Job only got in trouble with God. The devil came against him, sure. But Job only got in trouble with God when he accused God of doing it. Which is exactly what people do when they talk about Job. They fail to learn the lesson. They blame God for it. That's where Job got in trouble. That's the point in the book where God appears and says, Job, you're an idiot. I didn't do this to you. But still, the end of the Lord. You've seen the end of the Lord. That's what James is saying. You've seen the end of the Lord. What is the end of the Lord? Job 42.10. And the Lord turned again the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Now, you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 in the Beatitudes? Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When did Job's situation turn around? Turn around when he prayed for his friends. Did his friends deserve his prayer? No. They're adding to his trouble. 
They're the ones trying to get him to curse God for this thing. They're the ones trying to say, you're the one that did wrong. You're the one that should recognize where you messed up. And at that point, he hadn't done anything wrong. He only did something wrong when he began to accuse God and got sucked into their doctrine, their ideas. What's James telling us by the Holy Ghost, the story of Job is about? You've heard of the patience of Job. Job hung in there. He did pretty good till right up into the end, and then God straightened out his, his ideas, straightened out his thinking, and then he prayed for his friends, and the Lord turned his captivity and gave him twice as much as he had before. That's the story of Job, according to the Holy Ghost, folks. Now, why is he telling us about Job? Why is he telling us about Job in the New Testament? Why is he telling us when he's trying to instruct us to be patient and endure things that, that take longer than what we want, which is anything longer than instantly? He goes on in verse 13. He says, is any among you afflicted? Anybody going through the same test, trials, or afflictions? That's what the word afflicted means. It means test, trials, or troubles, or adversities. Anybody going through stuff like Job did? Any of you going through financial difficulties? Any of you going through uh, problems in life where people are coming against you and, and persecutions and, and people telling you the wrong things? Any of that kind of stuff? Like Job might be having, not like Job dealt with? Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Why? Because the end of the Lord is that he's very pitiful and of great mercy. He always comes through, in other words. The whole point is that God comes through. He sees you're in your trouble. Jesus will pull you out if you will hang tight and hang tough to his word. Stand strong upon his word and he'll see you through. That's the point he's trying to make, folks. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. He didn't say get other people to pray. He says you pray. Why? Because nobody's as interested in you as you. Well, I've turned in a prayer request to the church. Great. That's fine. It's great to have other people to pray for you. But if you're counting on other people to do your praying for you instead of you doing your own praying, you have missed the boat. God hears you. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. You know, it's an amazing thing. We get ten times more prayer requests than we get psalm requests. It is a very rare thing for somebody to call the office and say, I am so happy, would you sing for me? <laughs> but we get bunches, bukus of requests, I'm in trouble, will you pray for me? Well, now folks, I'll be just as happy to pray as I am to sing. In private. <laughs> but you see the point. It's the responsibility of the individual. When things are going good for us, we're not looking for somebody else to do our singing for us. We're happy to handle that on our own. Right? The point is, we have personal responsibility. Sure, it's great to get other people to join in. It's great to tell praise reports to get other people to rejoice with us. But the responsibility is still the individual's. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any among you merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him the sick, call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, the sick, anointing him, the sick, with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, so many times people get focused on the elders and the oil. But notice verse 15, it says, and the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. It's not the elders that do it. It's not the oil that does it. Folks, I hate to tell you this, but buying anointing oil that's been blessed from Israel that's been blessed by so-and-so doesn't help. Because it's not the anointing with oil that saves the sick. It's not the elders that save the sick. It's the prayer of faith that saves the sick. Now, what is the, the responsibility in verse 13 and 14, or verses 13, where it talks about the afflicted? The responsibility is the individual. Where the person is married, the responsibility is on the individual to sing psalms. The responsibility is on the individual that's sick. Now, he can get help, just like he can get help praying. But you've got to believe for yourself. That's the point. Why? Because God's mercy is activated by faith. Not somebody else's faith for you, your faith. That's why Jesus asked the blind men, do you believe that I can do this? They said, yeah. And he said, according to your faith, be it done unto you. He goes further and he says, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if, everybody say if. And if he has committed sins. That means not all sickness is caused by an individual sin. You see that? 
Sometimes it might be, but not always. But see, that's what the devil always wants to tell you. When sickness comes against you, he's going to say, oh, where did you miss it? And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I want you to notice that it's the same prayer of faith that forgives sins as what heals sickness. Not a different prayer. Same prayer of faith. What does that tell us? It tells us that healing mercy is the same as forgiving mercy. Because it's the same prayer of faith that activates it. Same prayer of faith that activates it. Now how can the modern day church say that healing has been done away with when it's the very same thing that causes it to take place and the very same power that heals is what saves sin, uh, that heals as what forgives sins? How is it possible? Same power. Forgives sins and heals the sick. Same faith activates both. So how is it possible that healing mercy is not available for us today? How is it possible that the mercy of God is only for forgiveness of sins? It's not for deliverance from satanic bondage. It's not for provision. How is it possible that those areas, those aspects of the mercy of God that Jesus revealed to us, He said, I only do what I see my Father do. God never changes. How is it possible that those things are done away with when it's the same faith and the same power that accomplishes both? How is it possible? It's not. We've got the same mercy available to us today as they had in Jesus' day and will always be available to all of mankind. Now, folks, there's a, here's the key element. The missing piece to all of these things, the missing piece to the mercy of God is that faith operates by love. Now, as I said before, a little bit earlier in the service, it really occurred to me this week, and I never really thought about it in the same way. I mean, it's not like it's brand new information, but I just never thought about it in the same context. And that is, the devil tries to condemn the Christian because of where you've messed up since you've been saved. And he tries to tell you that you're separated from God because you chose to do the wrong thing. And he'll even pull scriptures out. He'll pull out First John where it says, if we sin willingly, willfully, after we're born again, then there's no answer. Well, that's not talking about somebody falling and messing up. That's talking about somebody trying to get rid of and choose to leave the family of God. You haven't done that, have you? Well, no, of course not. So the devil will even try to use scriptures against you to make you think that you're separated from the mercy of God. Now, you weren't. God's mercy was so great to you that he saved you in spite of all the terrible things that you did before you knew him. But now that you know him, you know, now that you've messed up, you knew better. And so the mercy of God's not the same for you. Well, yeah, it is the same. Now, let me tell you what we do in the church. We have, the more knowledge you have, the greater temptation there is to become religious. Did you hear me? The more knowledge you have, the greater temptation there is to become religious. Now, we can rail on other people's religion. But don't think for a minute that we don't establish and develop our own traditions and our own religious ideas and our own religious thoughts. Let me show you what religion does. Religion always holds somebody else to a higher standard than you hold yourself. The Pharisees in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, they were big on sin. Big on sin. Everybody's done it. But yet they catch a woman in adultery and they want to kill her for it. They come to Jesus and they say, what do you say? The law says that she, the law commands that we should stone her, kill her. What do you say? And Jesus knelt down and starts writing in the dirt. The Bible doesn't tell us what he writes in the dirt, but I, I, I think we've got a good idea what, the, you know, how to figure it out. He starts writing stuff in the dirt and looks up and says, he that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. He doesn't say, no, forget the law of Moses. He says, the one who's qualified because they don't have sin in their life, let him be the one to throw the first stone. There'll be plenty of people to follow you once you do. But you be the one to cast the first stone. And it says he continued writing. Now, folks, the Bible tells us what the end result of that was. It says they were convicted by their own conscience. And so they left. Well, what would convict them of their, what would convict their conscience of their own sin if Jesus isn't writing the names of different sins that they're guilty of? What other possibility would there be? 
What's Jesus going to be writing on the ground that's going to cause them to be convicted in their own conscience? When, the, when his statement is, the one that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, he just wrote lying, so that does away with half the group. He writes down stealing, so that does away with another few. He's writing the names of sin on the ground. I firmly believe that. Now, I can't prove it, but you can't disprove it. Fits the narrative. He's showing them that they're just as guilty as she is. And they must get the point because they walk away. Now we see that and we think, oh yeah. Way to go, Jesus. You got those nasty, dirty, awful religious people. What do we do? We see somebody that's not acting quite right. And we make sure everybody hears about it. We see somebody that's struggling in an area in their life. Maybe they're stumbling over the same thing time and time and time again. And they're not quite as committed to God as we are. So what do we do? We pound them over the head every time we see them. Yeah, that'll win them. Brother Hagin used to say, even an old hog knows enough not to come to the trough if you beat him over the head with a two-by-four every time he comes. Some of you may have to think a while and figure that out. Some of you cultured folks. But it'll dawn on you. Folks, it happens in churches week after week after week. The pastor sees somebody come in. I wasn't expecting them. I've been waiting for them. What's he do? Preaches on their sin. Has that ever helped anybody? Now, we in word circles... We can handle it a little bit more spiritually. We say, you know, that guy over there, that lady over there, they're just so in the flesh. I, I just don't know why they even come anymore. Folks, is that an attitude not in the flesh? Is that not exactly what the Pharisees were doing with the woman with adultery? Taken in adultery? Hey, we found her doing wrong. We took her in, we found her in the very act of adultery. Whose job is it to look around to find people in the very act of adultery? That, that has always amazed me. The guys know where to be found. I'm just going to let that pass. <laughs> but folks, that's what religion does. Religion tries to catch somebody else doing the wrong thing so I don't have to look at me. So I don't have to examine myself. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, there's nobody that had to deal with this issue more than me. Man, when I was young, when I was first working with Brother Hagin, I would slaughter anybody at the drop of a hat that wasn't doing what I thought was right or, or especially came against Brother Hagin. These articles would come out calling Brother Hagin all kinds of things, saying all kinds of things, and I knew they were wrong. Lying, just absolute lies. I I'm not talking about mistaken. I'm talking about people purposely lying, publishing lies, saying that he said this. Well, I was there. He didn't say that. Twisting things in his books and saying that his books said things that they didn't. Oh, man, it used to make me so mad. I, ugh. Seriously, I would have fought. I would have taken physical action. I would have done anything I could have done if those people had been in my, my range of view. Seriously. I talked to Brother Hagin about it one day. There was an article that came out, and I, I, I was just sure he had seen it, so I was kind enough to bring it to him. What an idiot I was. So I brought it to him and said, Dad, have you seen this? He said, seen what? I said, this article, where are they saying it? And I went through it. They said this about you, and they said this about you, and they said this about you. He just looked at me. He said, oh, Mike. He said, what does it matter? 
Are you kidding me? What does it matter? They're talking about you. We've got people to kill. Time is wasting. <laughs> Never saw him answer back. Never. Never saw him answer back. I didn't know why. I heard later, a year, several years later, he, told, he said that... Uh, um, he said that when the Lord first dealt with him about, uh, about the prophet's ministry, he said that he drew back from it. And the reason he drew back from it is because of the way people talked about prophets and people that claimed to be prophets. And there were a lot of people out in, in, in the body of Christ in that point in time that were claiming to be prophets that weren't. The stuff they were saying, thus saith the Lord, <laughs> the Lord ain't said. You know what I mean? And uh, so he really, he drew back from it. And the Lord dealt with him, and, and, uh, and so a period of time went by, and the Lord said, you're going to have to do what I told you to do. And, and he, he just answered the Lord back. He said, Lord, I, I, I just don't want to do it. He said, why? He said, because I don't want people to talk about me like they talk about some of these others. And he said, the Lord told him something. The Lord said something very specific to him. He said, if anybody ever speaks against you, he said, don't ever answer a word. He said, they'll have to answer to me for that. If you try to handle it, I can't. You leave it alone, and I'll deal with it. And so that became his pattern. And so I'd bring stuff, and I, I, it would, oh, it would just infuriate me. Because I knew there were lies. There's still people out there telling lies. Repeating the same lies, rehashing, recycling the same lies over and over again. I have people sometimes tell me, well, I read this. I read this, that Brother Hagin said this, and Brother Hagin's book said that. And, you know, I've learned... I've learned. Now I just want to maim people. I don't want to kill them anymore. I'm, I'm just teasing. I didn't mean that. I was just teasing. But I've learned. Paul is saying the same thing to the church that Jesus said when he said, Judge not lest you be judged. Why do we think that we can hold somebody to a bigger standard than, than ourselves? We don't want God coming down on us. and We don't want other people coming down on us when we stumble and fall. Let me show you one last scripture. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Folks, there's only one thing, and I, I'm still learning this. You may, you may think that I've got a long way to go on this, and you may be right. But listen, I have come light years from where I used to be. And that is, you're only going to reach people with love. And whatever religious bend or justification or, or excuse you try to give for not walking in love, it's still not walking in love. Now that's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, you can't be a help to somebody else. And number two, it stops your faith from working. Both of those are important enough for me to make it right. Galatians chapter 6. Notice verse 1. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, the word fault is a sin. In other words, if you see somebody that has stumbled in sin, notice what it says, You which are spiritual, restore, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourselves, lest ye also be tempted. Why is there not more restoration in the church? Why is there not more people helping other people up when they are stumbling and falling? Maybe they're not as committed to God as you are. Maybe that's what they really want on the inside, but they're still being bound. Maybe there's stuff that just wrapped them up and tied them up. I was that way. My heart was toward God, but there was still stuff that was hanging on to me that I had yet to scrape off from the ways that I'd been acting before. Why is there not more people helping other people up? Why is there not more, man, I'm so glad to see you. I know it's been a long time. I'm so glad to see you. Do you not realize that when people are coming back to church, when people are coming back into the things of God after having been away, knowing that other people have heard about what they've done and stuff, do you not realize that there is a real condemnation that's already on them to, to begin with? We need to do everything we can to lift that off of people. We need to be the ones like the father of the prodigal son, welcoming them back in. There's too many people like the older brother. What's he doing here? He had his chance. Now you're giving him more? You're being good to him again? There's too many in the body of Christ like that. We need more fathers. Why isn't there more of that? Why isn't there more picking people up and helping them and, and loving on them and, and telling them, God's not mad at you and neither are we. We're so glad to see you. 
Why isn't there more of that? Galatians 6.1 gives you the answer. Because you can't find spiritual people. The ones that are sitting in church thinking that they're the ones that have got it together. They're not spiritual. Because if they were, they'd be out for the other guy's good. Get talking like this, it gets quiet in church, doesn't it? Not nearly as fun as when we want to shout about the goodness and the mercy of God. But folks, you need to understand something. Without the love of God, you're never going to see the mercy of God in action. Because faith is the necessary ingredient and faith works by love. That means it won't work without it. It means it won't work without it. Oh, yeah, but Pastor Mike, we have to keep the message pure. Yeah. Like we've got it all together, don't we? Folks, if God is waiting for everything to be just right and waiting for somebody to be perfect, there's nobody out here that he can use except me. He used to be able to work with Brother Hagin, but Brother Hagin's gone, to be home, gone home to be with the Lord. Who else has he got now, you know? You know I'm teasing about that. That's the way we think, though. We think everybody else needs to be like us. Everybody else needs to think like us. Folks, we've got so much thinking that we need to correct. It's not even funny. We've got so much doctrine, so much religious stuff. I still find things left over from my Baptist days that I find hinders me. And every time the light of God's Word shows on it, I think, well, dear Lord, I didn't know that was still there. It's like cancer. It's like religion is the cancer that, that still is trying to grow in certain parts. And you have to reach out and cut it out with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Sometimes it's a scalpel. Sometimes it's a mallet. Folks, if we're growing in the things of God, we need to be growing in love. John said it this way, John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He said, He that loveth not doesn't know God, for God is love. The mercy of God is only going to be shown to us in the degree that we show it to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That means your faith will receive of the mercy of God, whether it's healing, whether it's provision, whether it's freedom from the bondage of the enemy, whatever it is, any and every area, forgiveness of sins, whatever. It works to the degree that you show mercy to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that, that faith works by love and faith activates anything and everything that Jesus purchased for us. Oh, Father, we believe, we trust in your mercy. We trust in your mercy to forgive. We trust in your mercy to heal. We trust in your mercy to save. We trust in your mercy to provide. We trust in your mercy, Father, to set us free from those things that would hold us back. Father, just like we want you to show your goodness and your mercy to the fullest extent, help us to be a people that shows it to others. Thank you, Father, that you are slow to anger. Let the same be said of us. Thank you, Father, that you're of great mercy. Let the same be said of us. Forgive us, Father, where we've judged. Forgive us where we've tried to hold others to a standard that we don't want to be held to us. Forgive us, Father, where we refuse to forgive all the time asking you to forgive us. Father, I thank you that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And that goodness of God is seen first and foremost through your people. I thank you, Father, that the rain is falling upon our church. And I thank you that a, a very significant part of that rain falling, that move of the Holy Ghost in the last days, is going to be the love that we show toward each other and toward the world. Thank you, Father. Thank you that the love of God dwells in us. Thank you that we're developing in love. That we are patient and kind. That we always believe the best of every person. We thank you that the love of God in us covers a multitude of sins. Oh, Father, help us to be a people that gives each other a break. Understanding our own frailties. 
Help us to be a spiritual people, Father, that restores those who have been overtaken in a sin. Not those who bring judgment. That's the way you are toward us, Father. And we appreciate that so much. Help us to show that same love and mercy toward others. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Folks, I want to challenge you to do something this next week, really, this next life. And that is, look for ways that you can show mercy to others. Look for ways that you can overlook their wrongdoings. Look for ways that you can cover the mistakes that they've made and instead show them the goodness of God. Watch and see what a difference it makes in those people's lives. First response, you'll probably get a shock. But when, when that wears off, watch and see the change it makes in somebody else's life. You can affect somebody else for good. We'll just show God's love and mercy toward them. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Don't forget the, uh, the youth fundraiser, the bake sale that's going on out there. I'm sure they've got kids that are already out there manning the stuff. And help them out. Even if you don't want to eat everything, help them out. Thank you so much for caring about the things of God. I consider you, well, you are my family. But what I consider you to be my family, you have no idea. I appreciate your love for the things of God. God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you.